James, rather short verse to uh, begin, and we because we wanted to intro this book to you, and it's one amazing book. Um, there are several. I mean, obviously there are sixty-six books in what we call the biblical canon, and there are some that are quite long with several chapters, such as uh, the Book of Psalms. With you have one hundred and fifty Psalms, you have other books that are pretty big and quite amazing, and they're just. Uh, They have great imagery, such as the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel. But there are some books that are just simple and to the point. And James is one of those. It's five chapters long, but it's an amazing book because it's it's so practical that we can can just live with it in our everyday lives. And it changes us. It's not one that uh, has a lot of hidden imagery or it's not hard to understand, but it's relatively easy to understand once we really jump into this book because of the intense practical nature of this book. Matter of fact, as Mark Twain once said, he goes, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me so much. It's the parts I do understand. And we can see that in the book of, in the book of James. It's not what we don't understand. There's not a lot of high language or a great imagery and uh, illusions and prophecy. It's simple. It's to the point, And it's absolutely phenomenal in what it communicates to us. So today I want us to delve into this, this wonderful book to kick us off for this series that we'll be into all the way through spring. And I invite you to study this word with me as we really try to break down and peer into this, this book and examine its author, the audience, everything around it. And we're going to see that it's, it's quite phenomenal that, and how it, who, who wrote it, how it's a, 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 the audience that it's addressed to, and the situations that it addresses we find are not just rooted in the biblical time, but in our very lives as well. That it speaks to us. It speaks to us in every situation in which we find ourselves. And when we really get into what the scripture says and teaches, we find that it's not far removed, that it speaks to real faith in everyday life. I've had the privilege of traveling to several different countries and interacting with Christians in uh, so many different venues. I've been in house churches and in large uh, ex- you know, churches of several thousand people, different languages, uh, worshiping in pretty phenomenal ways. And as I've gone through this, I've, I've been amazed at just the different people, especially here in the United States, that consider themselves Christians, but yet their lives don't reflect the truth or the label that they put on themselves. And I think this was brought out uh, recently by an interview with Tim Keller. I don't know if some of you are familiar with him, but he is a pastor of Redeemer Church in, in uh, New York City, in Manhattan specifically. And he was being interviewed, I want to say it's uh, by a guy named Nicholas Kristoff, who considers himself a Christian. And as as he was interacting with uh, Tim Keller, he asked some questions, and he was surprised at Keller's answer. He said, do you have to believe in the virgin birth, the miracles of Jesus, and the uh, resurrection of Jesus from the dead to be a Christian? And Keller said, well, this is something that has been held by Christians over time, that we don't have the ability to choose what it is we believe and don't believe. And then this caused Christoph to label Tim Keller as a quote-unquote dangerous Christian. Now, I find that interesting. Something that has been held by Christians over the millennia is now considered to be dangerous. And I've seen these other groups that have kind of risen up with certain characteristics above themselves, but I notice that their faith doesn't transfer into the everyday. They like the label of it. They like the political idea of it. Maybe they like the nostalgia of it, or they like having some aspect of moralism. But really, their faith doesn't show in their everyday lives. 
And I've seen this, and there's many different categories or types of these individuals. I call individuals such as uh, Christoph, the guy who was interviewing Tim Keller, as a pathetic progressive. Those are those individuals that want to make Christianity affirm their worldly ideas rather than making their worldly ideas conform to God's truths. Then there are those who consider themselves Christians but seek to live by law. I call these individuals lame legalists. Those who have, who have all kinds of rules for Christians to follow, which may or may not be in the Bible. And if they are, then they're usually elevated to such a height far greater than the verses around it, becoming legalists in the process. They live by legalistic rules than a loving relationship. And they are lame because they really become painful pretenders. They can't live the law they espouse, so they end up with a schizophrenic faith where they go crazy engaging in some act whereby they want to kill people or end in all, all kinds of sins and affairs. Uh, these are people that are too spiritual almost for their own, their, their own good, that they're not earthly good. They don't live that life that they espouse. I remember there was a time when uh, I wanted to paint something in a church, and uh, one individual said, we'll never paint anything in the church. Uh, that's worldly. And one look, guy looked at him, and he goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And the guy, everybody in the room at first had thought, oh, this guy's so holy. He goes, we're going to take that money and give it to missions that we would spend on paint. And, they, and the other guy goes, that's dumb. He goes, you know why it's dumb? He goes, let me ask you a question. Do you paint your house? The guy goes, well, yeah. He goes, then paint the church. Because see, he was so spiritually minded that he, he wasn't any earthly good. And that's how legalists are. It's like they don't understand how to, to live their everyday faith. There is this high regard of Scripture in many ways and taking God seriously, but so much to the point they don't understand grace and how to let that transfer into their everyday life. So we have pathetic progressives who are Christian in name only, and then you have lame legalists who live by law. Then there are what I call the consumed charismatics. Now, these are those who are consumed with the experiencing the supernatural to the point that they have no clue of daily discipleship. They want deliverance. They want the miraculous. They want to talk about all the great things of God. But yet, they don't want to give all of their life under the submission of God's sovereignty. In other words, they don't want God to, to take part of their finances or to dictate their entertainments and any of these other things. They're so concerned of, we want to see the miracle. We want to see the power of God. Glory, glory. And then you look at their everyday life and you're like, it doesn't match up. Because see, it doesn't translate into real everyday faith. Now, does, is God the God of miraculous? Yes, but you don't live there. Even Jesus doesn't do that. Even after all of the miracles that Jesus does, after he had healed all these people, he goes away to pray and retreat. And then the disciples show up and go, Jesus, we've been looking for you everywhere. You're a rock star, baby. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's make your name known. And what does he do? Go, no, no, no. Let's go. I, I, I didn't come here to be a sideshow. I need to go share the good news in places where it's not yet been heard. So we have those consumed charismatics that we have to uh, help with. And there's many different categories, but the one that I'd like to focus on today is what I call the everyday evangelicals. Those who let the truth of God permeate every aspect of their lives, not denying the miraculous, but giving it its place as we seek to surrender every facet of our lives to God's penetrating presence. And one of the books that has helped countless Christians over the millennia to be everyday believers is this book of James. It's an amazing book, five chapters long, but the everyday truths that are given are to help people live out their faith in amazing everyday moments makes it absolutely phenomenal. So today, we're going to begin with an overview of this amazing book, 
so we can discover together what God has for us, how we can live out our faith in our homes, with our families, with our relatives, in our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods. So let's pause for a moment asking God to help us as we begin this journey together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak to us, empower us, direct us to not be those who are pathetic progressives, not to be those who are lame legalists, not to be the consumed charismatics, but to be those everyday evangelicals, those who seek to live out their faith, no matter what the social cost it may have to us and the, those around us that might reject us or neglect us. But may we truly live our lives out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let the truths that are in this book, may your Holy Spirit speak through them, and may our hearts be fertile and open, ready to receive the truths that we might go forth changed, we might go forth transformed, that we might truly go out as uh, the fragrance of Christ, that those who encounter us might truly sense your presence and your power in our lives. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start off. Let's jump into this wonderful book. First of all, we start off in verse 1. And again, that's basically the verse we're going to dissect today. And after that, we'll jump further into it. But it starts off with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who this is. He's a rather complex author. That's what we're going to examine first. And to ever understand a book, you really need to understand the author and the perspective that they're writing from. Anything that I've encountered over, when, I, when I've read books, when I've encountered speakers, I always want to know, what's their background? What are they writing against? What are they battling? Why are they saying it that way? And, and it's no different with the biblical authors. Each one of them, the Holy Spirit empowered to write, but they all come from per- specific backgrounds, and God speaks through the personality, style, and experience of each one of these individuals to help us fully get the meaning of what's being brought out. And James is no different. And he's a rather complex author. He actually identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word for servant in Greek is called doulos. It literally means a bond servant, one who had been purchased for a reason, that, they, that God owns them. Now, the question is, is why does James use this verbiage I mean, he's saying he's Jesus' slave. Why that title? Because he saw himself as, as low, of low status due to how he used to treat Jesus, which I'll get into for a moment, in a moment. See, there's been some debate on James's identity, but upon looking at the evidence, I believe we can see that James was actually the half-brother of Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Some would say, especially those from a Roman Catholic background, would say Jesus had no brothers. Um, The Scripture actually says time and time again that he does have brothers. Uh, Some have concluded that the word there means cousins, but that's a very huge stretch linguistically. Uh, Those who come from more of a Catholic theology, that viewpoint was held to justify some other theological views that the Roman Catholic Church held. We don't come with those uh, preconceived notions. We just look at what the text says. And we see that after Jesus was born, and you had Mary and Joseph, that Jesus was obviously supernaturally conceived, that uh, he had other brothers and sisters, that Mary and Joseph did come together, and that they had brothers and sisters. I mean, they had other children 
that were born into this household. And we see that time and time again throughout the scriptures. So the plain reading of the text shows that Jesus had siblings, but they didn't, so they, they shared the same mother, but not the same father, obviously. So this is Jesus's half-brother. Now, I can't imagine growing up in a household with Jesus as my big brother. I mean, you think you got family issues. I can't imagine what Mary and Joseph were saying to their other kids, if they said it at all. They went, you need to be a lot like your brother. But mom, he's perfect. I know. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine those interactions, that sibling rivalry. And I'm sure James is probably like, I can't imagine when he was interacting with his friends, they're like, what's up with your brother? He thinks he's the Messiah. <laughs> and you know what's even weirder? Mom and dad agree with him. <laughs> I'm sure there was some, seriously, we, we have to understand Jesus is fully human and, as well as fully divine. And he was an ordinary guy. Now, whether he was, I, I think he wasn't probably odd. I think he was normal and fit in with everybody. And I'm sure he didn't lord it over or, uh, any of his siblings. But I'm sure there was some, some really hard social stigma that was associated with this. And I'm sure it's not something that James broadcast to his friends. This isn't something that he wanted everybody else to know. But we do think that he is the half-brother of Jesus. And there are other James named in Scripture. James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of John, who was an apostle. James, son of Alphaeus. James, the father of Judas, the disciple. And James, the Lord's half-brother. We can't know conclusively that it was him, but many scholars throughout history have believed that it was him. And I believe that he is also a heavy skeptic. He is a huge heavy skeptic. Not only is he Jesus' half-brother, but he's a skeptic about his brother. Now, this isn't necessarily seen right off in the text, but as you look at the entire fullness of Scripture and you see these interactions, uh, you see that he's not there through many of these. For example, in Matthew chapter 15, 13, verse 53 through 58, we, we reread this. Now, Jesus had finished these parables. He went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works from? They're offended by him. Like, we grew up with this guy, okay? Jesus has been with us the entire time. And then they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James? There you go. And Joseph and Simon and Judas are not all his sisters with us? Where, when, where did then this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there, many mighty works there, because of their unbelief. Then we, I want us to have that. So we have James being named there. So we're clarifying his identity. But there's this understanding that the people in the community were, they knew who he was. And I'm sure there was some pressure by the local authorities. Hey, James, what's up with your brother? Why is he teaching everybody? And James is like, hey, I don't want to get into this. He's pulling back. And then you have passages like Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They're saying, he's out of his mind. So Jesus is teaching in the, the synagogue, and his mother and his brothers show up. Now, Joseph had apparently died by this time. But they show up, and they're like, he's out of his mind. He's nuts. I mean, come on, we've grown up with him. He's a carpenter. He's not had a lot of religious training. But now he's saying he's the Messiah. And so they're thinking he's crazy. And I'm sure that James is probably the next in line of his brothers, just by how he was mentioned in the passage before, and so he's like, okay, I'll be the kind of the spokesman for the family here. He's crazy. So they're saying that he's out of his mind. And you look down further in Mark chapter 30, verse 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came 
And standing outside, they sent him and called him. They wouldn't even go in. Maybe they couldn't go in, but they wouldn't go in. And, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. They wanted to stop him. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever who does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is saying here that there is a spiritual bond that occurs when people do believe in me. These are my, this is my family because my earthly family in many ways has rejected me as Messiah. So we see that James is actually a heavy skeptic. He's one of these brothers and they all think Jesus is crazy and I can't blame him. I can't imagine growing up with Jesus in my, my house. But even though he was a regular guy, he still felt that stigma and that pressure, especially by the religious leaders in the community. But I think the most greatest indictment of James being a skeptic takes place at Calvary when Jesus addressed his mother. Now, if you remember, Jesus is on the cross, okay, and everybody's there witnessing his death. But there's some people that are not there. Now, look at this passage here in uh, John chapter 19. And by standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Brothers aren't, and sisters aren't identified. They're not there. In other words, they were staying away because the cost was, of identifying with Jesus was too high. Remember what happens with the early disciples. After Jesus' crucifixion, they go hide because they're afraid what's going to happen. So these brothers and sisters are not claiming any allegiance with Jesus whatsoever. His mother makes an appearance at the cross, but his brothers and sisters are nowhere to be found. They're not identified because they're, they're, they're probably not there. John seems to go to a, a certain extent to, to just name those who are present that had a, some type of connection. So his siblings are not around. Why? Because they were too afraid and they wanted to distance themselves from Jesus because they thought he was crazy. So that's what's going on. So his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now, here's what's even more amazing about this. He said to the disciple, this is John that he's referring to, behold your mother. Now, what's phenomenal about that is this is where we have to go back and understand Jewish society. It was the responsible of the firstborn male to take care of his family. It's still alive that way in many, many cultures, and it's still, in many ways, in our own culture. And if that firstborn male couldn't do it, it was the responsible of the nextborn male to do it. So Jesus' responsibility, he's the oldest one in the family, he is to, he's telling his mother now, I'm going to have John, not James, my brother, not my other brother or my sister, any of my family members, Mom, you're not going to go live with them, you're going to go live with this guy who's not even a part of the family which is hugely insulting. Why would he do that? It's because he's saying that they don't believe in me, even though Mary had, she is beginning to really understand who Jesus is. I mean, she had, we had the Magnificat when she finds about his birth, but she did struggle at times trying to figure out how he was the Messiah. But now we have her full-fledged, she's, she's believing in Jesus, not understanding the resurrection yet. And Jesus is saying to her, go with John, my apostle. He's gonna take care of you because my other siblings... They're not, they don't believe yet. And I want him to be able to take care of you. So we see that James is a massive skeptic. Massive skeptic. But we see something, have, there's a change that occurs. See, James comes face to face with a hard reality. A hard reality. And this is where we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 7, to get us more of an understanding of this background of James. 
Now, Paul is writing, actually, the first content, the summation of what one needs to believe to be saved. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. It's another name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to who? James, the author of our text. Now, that had to have been a a crazy meeting. I mean, I can't imagine what went in that interaction. I mean, when James knew he was dead, probably was relieved that I don't have to deal with this anymore. I don't have to deal with that pressure. But then to see his brother and to know everything that he had heard, everything that he had grown up with, he'd heard the birth story of Jesus from his parents. He had heard what the the officials and the religious teachers had been murmuring. He had heard the gossip that had gone around. He had faced that that conversation with his, his friends in the community and probably tried to quiet it or dampen it. But yet here, right in front of him, is his resurrected brother bearing the marks of his death and resurrection. That he has the the nails in his hands, in his feet, and on his side. And we know that was all there, because remember when he appears to Thomas, because Thomas was the doubting disciple, and Thomas had said, unless I put my finger in his side, and the word in Greek literally is, if I plunge my hand in, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus shows up and says, go ahead. Touch me to see. And so James, you wonder how we reacted. I wonder how many of these individuals reacted. I'm sure some of them were freaked out. They were scared, might even tried to run away. I'm sure someone just fell down in worship. Some were just passed out. I, I, I'm sure there were every reaction that we could think of to seeing a man that we thought was dead is now alive. I mean, think about how crazy that is. And yet, here's what's going on. James sees the risen Christ in everything that he knew, everything that he believed, everything that he valued at that moment in time shifted. Because the the validity of all of Jesus' words, all of his teaching, the entirety of his life came down like a giant weight on James' mind. And all of these things he didn't understand, he now understood. And he is transformed. See, many of us in this room are a little bit like James. We have grown up around the faith. We're familiar with it. James knew about it, but yet we've removed ourselves from it. We've become skeptics to it. We don't want to pay that social capital that is necessary of possible alienation, of humiliation, that we've been flirting with Jesus or we've, we've just kind of kept it in his arm's distance. But God is saying, I'm showing you the reality of my presence right now and what are you going to do about it? How is that going to change your life? I want you to know that I am here, that I am who I said I am, and that you just can't go through the motions any longer. You can't just have, you can't just have that name and name only. Your life now has to reflect the reality of that change. Now let me ask you a question. Does your life reflect the reality of that change? The reality of his resurrection? Does it bear upon your life? Because it's the resurrection that is the exclamation point for everything else Jesus said and did, which means that he is going to come back. That he is going to judge the living and the dead. 
that no matter how bad this world may become, and Jesus said it would be, that it's not going to change his kingdom agenda one iota, that it's go- everything he said is going to come to pass. Is the resurrection of life being exhibited through you to the world around you? Does your life reflect the reality of who Jesus is? Let me ask you another question. If it does not, why does it not? Why? What is it that's missing? I mean, many of us are like James. And James was changed, and he still will change your life too. He's in that business of changing lives. He will transform you. He will empower you. He will encourage you. He will challenge you. And then he will send you off. And you will see that that, the social stigmas and the situations you face will fail in comparison to what he has for you. Because the reality is that's why many of us don't want to submit because we're afraid of the price that we're going to pay. We love our sin, but yet we're afraid of what other people will say about us. We're intimidated. We've been bullied into submission. And I, I... I see that going on in our culture right now. Not necessarily, part of it's with faith, but I'm seeing it even with the election results, and I'm not advocating one or the other, okay? That's not my point. But what's amazed me is how many of this, this thing with Trump, and I'm, again, not getting into all the things with Trump, but I'm amazed at how many people, and there's this controversy over even the inauguration itself, and how many people are refusing to participate because they're afraid because of what people have said to them, the social capital, the social stigma that they might face. Even in the voting that was going on, I remember watching just commentators and, and they, people were, and you'll remember this, people were amazed at the election and so many political commentators were astounded because they said everyone said they were going to vote for you know, Clinton, not over Trump. And then one man said, I see a lot of Trump leaners. In other words, they don't want to say they're going to vote for Trump because they're afraid of what other people are going to say about them. So they, they called them leaners. They said, I'm going to think I'm going to vote this way. Now, again, I'm not advocating for or against. I'm saying that there's a similar process that's being played out within Christians today because many Christians are afraid that if they truly live their faith, that they're going to face stigma. They're going to face possible lawsuits, loss of friends, persecution, misunderstanding. And so they live lives of quiet spiritual desperation. But see, God is calling us to, be, to understand that we're not standing for a political candidate. That's not what the church is about but we're to represent the King of Kings. And he's given us his spirit to empower us, to encourage us, to help uh, not have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Showing the reality of Christ in our lives. Not being afraid of what suffering might come. So James, his life represents and bears witness to that, that he had come face to face with this hard reality. But it's one that was transformative. And it can transform us too. James was so transformed that we can see that he became one of the heads of a movement. Because remember, when Christianity really began, it wasn't seen as a religion. It was just seen as an aspect or the fulfillment of Judaism. Matter of fact, the earliest followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. The idea was progress, life, the entirety of one's life shown in submission to Christ and everything that they did. He became one of the heads of this church. I mean, we see James recounting, actually, when Paul is recounting his conversion story of the church of Galatians, we see where James is a leader in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, verse 19. Paul says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. 
after his conversion, to visit Cephas, Peter, and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James, the Lord's brother. That he became one of the leaders of the, this new movement of Jesus' followers. He had been persuaded that Jesus was who James had always been told he was. He didn't need further testimony or proof. He saw it with his own eyes. As they met in house churches, he began directing them, hearing their problems, helping give directions, helping people apply the principles that Jesus taught. And again, there are many of you here today that are just like James. You grew up hearing about Jesus, but you didn't believe. Your whole family may have gone to church, but it didn't make sense to you. You became a skeptic just like James. Distancing yourself in whatever way you could. Sure, you've heard the stories, but you haven't believed them. You tried to stay away, to neglect it. But you, could, but you find that he keeps drawing you in, and now he's speaking to you by his Spirit, impressing upon you the truth of who he is. You know your sin, but you also are beginning to sense his presence. He's showing you that he is real. He's God, and he wants you to yield to him, to surrender and receive him in. He's offering to change you, to transform you, and to make you into a witness for him. Don't wait. Don't linger. Don't try to rationalize it away. Believe and receive him. Now next, I'd like us to turn to the challenging audience. We've talked a lot about James, the, the author. Now I'd like to look at the audience that he is writing to. It says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. I say challenging because the identity, after the first glance, is a bit challenging to nail down. See, he refers to the 12 tribes, which is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he also says they were in the dispersion. But the problem is that he's not writing to ethnic Jews, but Jewish Christians. As one scholar notes, he says, Jesus chose 12 apostles and looked forward to the day of his own glory when they would sit on 12 thrones ruling the tribes of Israel. In doing this, he was not creating a new Israel, either alongside or replacing an old Israel. He was leading the Israel out of the old covenant into its full intended reality as the Israel of the new covenant, the apostolic people of our Lord Jesus Christ, those whom Paul calls the Israel of God. And in a word, Israel then is the name of the people of Jesus. It is the true and immediate title of his church. Because of this, Paul teaches that Christians are children of Abraham, and that Abraham is our father. He doesn't quantify this relationship by saying, for example, that we can think of ourselves as if we were children of Abraham, or that we might find it helpful to draw an analogy between ourselves and those who are Abraham's children, or anything like that. He asserts a fact. Those who put their faith in Jesus for salvation are Abraham's children and the Israel of God. In other words, let me simplify it. He's talking to Jewish Christians that are scattered around the known world, specifically in Cyprus, Phoenicia, and Antioch. These Christians are scattered believers. They have faced persecution that had arisen in Jerusalem. The apostles had managed to stay in Jerusalem, probably because they were already established believers and the government didn't want to mess with them anymore. I know when I go to India, for example, when I preach in India, uh, I, I go in there, and it's, it's fascinating. The government doesn't mess with the church there. Those who are born into Christian families, they don't mess with. They give you full freedom to practice your faith. What is illegal is to proselytize, to share your faith. So if you convert from Hinduism to become Christian, that's when the persecution starts. So in many ways, what you're seeing in in ancient Israel, in Jerusalem here, is what's being played out in modern India. Is He's saying that the church had already been established. They already knew who the apostles were. They'd already converted. We already faced hostility with them. We'd already killed their founder. They stuck around, and people are starting to follow them. If we mess with them, 
then we're going to be in trouble. So let's get those who had converted and come after them. And that's when the people leave, but the apostles actually got to stay in Jerusalem because they were already established. But these new believers had to flee, sometimes taking their entire families, losing all of their money, losing their jobs, losing their heritage, everything they lost to go off for Jesus. And so they're scattered in places like Phoenicia, Antioch, and Cyprus. And they've kind of formed these little small communities to help encourage one another. That's a lot of cost. Could you pay that cost of what they did? Would you be willing to give up everything for that? Giving up your family, your heritage, perhaps even your own life? We see that going on in our modern era. There are more Christians that died in 2016 than we've ever seen in one year. 90,000 Christians were killed in the world last year. 90,000. That's incredible, and it's taking place all over the world. And there's even watchdog lists of showing where it's difficult to be a Christian. And we think of countries such as North Korea, which is one of the harshest environments to be a follower of Christ. Places like Indonesia... Uh, These are places, or Saudi Arabia, are very hostile to the gospel. But where it's really astounding me is how much it's increased in the United States. Matter of fact, uh, the United States has for the first time been named among the top 12 nations where Christians are targeted for their faith by a persecution watchdog group called, it's a watchdog group in its Hall of Shame report for 2016. The United States has entered into this conversation. Meaning that there's a lot of legalities, there's a lot of political or social capital one loses by stepping in and following Christ. But that's the price that God's called us to face. See, these were scattered believers, but they were suffering persecution. Now, we don't really know how to suffer persecution yet in the United States. We have and been blessed with brothers and sisters from different cultures in our church, such as the Burmese. They understand what it means to suffer for their faith. Uh, they, they're in our services, and you, if you haven't got to sit down and meet with them, it's, it's phenomenal. Their entire villages have been decimated. We have one young woman here. She was born in the jungle while her family was on the run because their entire family had been eliminated. I mean, their entire village had been eliminated because of their ethnic group, sometimes because of their faith. We don't know how to, to be persecuted. Persecution for us, I mean, it, it, we don't understand what it means to suffer any longer. But God is saying, you know what? If you're truly going to follow me, that's, you're going to have that type of suffering. You are going to suffer persecution. And they, that the church that, or the group that James is writing to was definitely suffering persecution. And they were in desperate need of spiritual direction. Spiritual direction. They needed help. They needed to know how to endure these trials they were facing. By them going through trials, did, they mean, did that mean that they were doing something wrong? James writes to say, no, no, no. It means you're doing something right. They needed to know how to control their speech. They needed to know how to, to uh, what the world was and how they were to fight against it. They needed to know all of these things. And we do too. In the middle of our crazy world, we need to know how, what it means to be a follower of Christ, which means that we don't bend our faith to live in modern society. We take the truths of God's word, which transcend time, that applies to us in each and every generation, that shows us how to live in the middle of a sinful society. To be citizens of a truly heavenly kingdom, we need that spiritual direction. You do and I do. We have to continually go to the word of God to receive that. James goes beyond head knowledge to heart knowledge and application. He's definitely a 
giving us a call to action. There are several commands throughout this small book, commanding us to how we are to live, how we are to respond. In other words, he's calling us to action, not to attend church, but to be the church that God has for us, to learn how to live out our faith in everyday life, in our marriages. How do we communicate with our spouses? How do we treat our children? How do we interact with our bosses? How do we um, enjoy our entertainments or refrain from them? How do we control our tongues? How do we understand who God is and what's going on in the world and how people respond to the gospel of Jesus? These are all things that James is addressing for us. But he's giving us a call to action. And what is that call to action? He calls us all to cultivate a kingdom lifestyle. A kingdom lifestyle. Now, Here's what I mean by that. The book of James is a fleshing out of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, has direct parallels with the book of James. It's just drawing out what the Sermon on the Mount is. He's showing us what a citizen of God's kingdom looks like. It doesn't, a, a citizen of God's kingdom doesn't just give us a verbal affirmation that they are... Christians, but they seek to have every area of their life reflect Jesus's lordship. I'm not sure how much we grasp this, but Jesus and James gives us the characteristic characteristic of what a citizen of God's kingdom looks like. And there are many parallels from the Sermon on the Mount. For example, Jesus says that we're to rejoice in our trials, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. So does James in James 1, 2. Jesus desires that we seek to be perfect and complete, Matthew 4, 5, 48 as does James in James 1.4. God desires us to ask him for good things, Matthew 7, 7 through 11, as does James in James 1, 5 and 17. Jesus desires that we avoid uh, sinful anger in Matthew 5.22, as does James in James 1.20. Jesus wants us to be doers of the word, not just hearers in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, as does James in James 1.22. We can see God's heart for the poor in the kingdom in Matthew 5, 3 and 5. Jesus tells us about the necessity of being righteous in Matthew 5, 20, as does James in James chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus calls the merciful blessed in Matthew 5, 7, as does James in James 2, 13. We recognize a person's life by their fruits, Matthew 7, 16. James says the same thing in James 3, 12. Peacemakers are blessed, Matthew 5, 9. And James says the same in James 3, 18. As are the mourners, Matthew 5, 4 and James 4, 9 through 10. Both warn us, warn us of making friendships with the world, Matthew 6, 24, as does James in James 4, 4. Both desire us to be slow to judge, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. So does James, James 4, 11 through 12. Both look to God for their, his provision for tomorrow, Matthew 6, 34, James 4, 13 through 14. And lay up our treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 19, James 5, 2 through 5. Both warn us to stay away from making promises we can't keep, Matthew 5 through 37 and James 5:12. And look at prophets as an example to follow, Matthew 5:12 and James 5:10. See, one author noted that in the Gospels we have only three mentions of the word church from Jesus' lips, while at the same time we hear Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven 84 times. James is restating Jesus' teaching what a kingdom citizen looks like. He's also writing to change our perspective on suffering. Change our perspective. Change their perspective, but change our perspective. Again, they were wondering, if we're suffering, it must mean that we're not in the will of God. And, and James writes and goes, no, Jesus, is gonna, Jesus suffered, and therefore we are going to suffer. He writes to change their perspective. We have to change our perspective that this is not our best life now, that our kingdom is of, not of this earth. 
that our kingdom is the one that is breaking through and showing the light of Christ. It is a heavenly kingdom of which we will be and experience the fullness when Jesus comes again. But we have a foretaste of now. He wants to, us to change our perspective on suffering and also control our tongues. Again, I'm just giving you an, inter, an overview, and we're going to really break this down in subsequent weeks. Control our tongues. Our words are powerful. We've been affected by the words of those who have gone before us, and our words affect our children, family members, classmates, colleagues, neighbors, friends, and fellow believers. James knew the power of words and wrote to help us know how to rein them in as to promote the kingdom of God rather than hurt those around us. He actually says that our tongue is like a, 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 it can just put out poison. And I'm wondering what he said about Jesus when he didn't believe. What did he say? What did he do to bring him down? I mean, what do we do to bring down those around us? How often have we let our words go out? Have we said something in anger that we wish we wouldn't have said? And James is saying, no, Jesus needs to be the mastery of your tongue and your speech as well to know how to speak to those around you, how to speak to those that you disagree with. We have to learn to control our tongues. But James also puts, puts a practical bent to it as well. And he says, this needs to go just beyond you, but it also help, must, we also must show that we are kingdom citizens by caring for those who are needy, those who are oppressed. In this passage, he says, the widows and the orphans, but we can expand that. And we need to do more of that. I'm speaking to us as a church. We need to find ways to help show Jesus to our community by taking care of those that are hurting. And not just in our community, but all over the world. There are those, there are some great organizations out there that are helping people, uh, whether it's getting water for a community, access to doctors, maybe education, whatever it might be. But we are too, as the church, to care for those who are needy, those who can't speak up for themselves. That's the point of the church. Now, I had someone speak to me the other day, and they were talking, we were talking about political issues, and they were talking about the subject of abortion. And again, it's a hot-button topic. And they said, well, I don't want to talk about a political topic. Before it's a political topic, it's a theological topic. Our theology has to transform that first. And we have to let God be the determiner of what that is, to direct us, to show us. And there's other many topics that we need to talk about, but we have to understand that it's politics that is trying to hijack something like that. And we need to be able to speak to those that are in situations where they're considering it, whether it's for the child, but also for the parent that's thinking that, to help those. There are some that they don't think that there's any other option. We're there to help them show them there are, and not just to stand up for the baby, but to be there for that mother who is having to go through this very difficult decision to help her, to encourage her. And even once that child is born and she says, I'm, I've decided not to abort this child, but you come alongside them and you say, let us help you in the middle of this. How can we help you with this child? And even if, and if that was the choice that she did make to abort her child, we're still there to offer mercy and grace and to speak truth. We're to care for the needy, for those that are hurting, not the ones that always make the best decisions because there are people out there going to make poor decisions all the time. But the church isn't there. Yes, we preach truth and, and what God says about it, but we also show grace and mercy at the same time to people to come alongside them because the reality is we all need grace and mercy, each one of us. So we need to understand that, to care for those who are needy, and not just in those political issues, but those situations where no one else is looking. You know, one of the things that I've seen go on in the last year, I mean, we have the biggest refugee crisis in the history of mankind. This has been the biggest movement of people uh, from one place to the other in, in the world ever in history. 
This is crazy on how many people are being displaced and people are hurting and going through difficult times. And it's become now popular for churches to want to help refugees. The thing was, it's always been popular in God's eyes to help people that are hurting. It's not just because it's the flavor of the month. And I remember talking with some of the World Relief Partners and they said, we can't, we, we're, they were trying to meet in different churches and they said, no churches will let us in. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Let's open up our doors. Let's have them come in. And, and now other churches have turned around and opening their doors, which is great. But here's the thing. It's never been about what's popular. It's, it's understanding this is what God's heart's always been about, not just about refugees, but about the, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, those who are hurting, those who have been oppressed. And it could be an oppression that goes beyond uh, what we often experience in our country, but it could be those who are racially oppressed, economically oppressed, uh, those who have been beaten, marginalized, whatever it might be. We're to show the, share the love of Christ in the middle of that. And that's what James is addressing, and he's calling us to, to care for the needy, but also to check our worldliness, our worldliness. See, the world, as we have learned, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what has, what has and one does, these aren't things that are, it's a love for the world, which is this fallen world system that is declared war against God. There are values and truths that this world, not truths, but values that this world trumpets that God's word condemns. And James is telling us to put ourselves into a spiritual MRI to check ourselves whether or not we love the world. Because if we love the world, we cannot be God and consider him as our friend. You can't. In our world today, we want to make it our own choice. I'll have a little bit of world here, and I'll take a little bit of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus should be happy that I'm here being his friend. God says, you got it wrong. That it's not about, I mean, you, it's about me. And I don't compromise. And if I said that the world is passing away and that if you are a friend with the world, I'm not changing my mind on that to substantiate or to make you feel better about your indulgences. And I see that. I'm happening in many churches. As a matter of fact, some churches are responding to the legalism of previous generations. And now the pendulum's going the other way where they're saying that, hey, I'm going to enjoy this. And if you say that's wrong, now you become a legalist and judgmental. And I don't want to hear that. And now they're, they're finding excuses and rationalizations to enjoy all of their sinful pleasures. And God says, no, 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 no. James is saying, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You have to check your worldliness and you can't be God's friend if you're going to hold on to that. You can't have him and the world. And lastly, as persecution mounts, as we deal with these stresses that we face in our own lives and the, in the, in the situations around us, James is saying, no matter what you go through, you can call on God. You can cry out to God. God is there for you. And I want you to understand that as he's writing to this audience. I want you to understand that he is there for you. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you joyous? Let him sing songs of praise. The idea is call on God. Cry out to God. Because when you cry out to him, he he wants you to cry out to him. He wants you to invite him to bear on the situations of your life. What situations that you're facing, he's asking you to say, hey, call on me. I'm here for you. He's not like that person that you talk to and says, yeah, I'll be there for you. And then they don't. He will always be there and he will always be faithful when you call on him and you trust in him. So as we go on this journey through the book of James, and I just want to give you a taste today just to explore and expand our vision of it for a little bit. I would ask you to prepare yourself for what God has from this little book. It's phenomenal. It's in your face, doesn't pull punches, 
doesn't spare words. It's not tolerant. It is pure, unadulterated truth. But this truth is God's truth, meant to draw you closer to him. James knew it. He testified to it. And now he's writing and teaching others about it. As we go through this journey together, we must make sure to not hold on to our sin, not to play games with God, but take him for who he is. See the book and the man who wrote it as imprinted with the truth and fullness of Christ, which is meant to transform us, to live and become like him who died for us, who was crucified on the cross for our sins and who rose again for our justification and who offers that gift of salvation to all who come call on him in spirit and in truth. And he will save you, transform you, and empower you to be this true citizen of his kingdom, preaching and teaching those around you by being the true light of Christ, salt and light in the midst of this sinful world. But he will use you for his glory and it will ultimately be for your joy as we, we see this together. But let's close our message time in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, I'm amazed at this small book, but it's just action-packed. It is filled with amazing truth, transformative truth, truth that does not remain static but is active, that is calling us, that is challenging us, that is admonishing us to be the people that you want us to be. And Lord, as we prepare ourselves in the next few months to go through this spiritual surgery, we ask that your spirit's blade of scripture might cut deeply and cut accurately to remove the cancer of unbelief in our souls, that we might truly be healthy disciples who are passionately pursuing you. And Lord, for those secret sins that we've buried beneath and tried to hide away, Lord, please bring them to the surface that they might be confessed and forsaken. And Lord, rekindle a passion with each, each one of us to pursue you wholeheartedly, to dedicate ourselves to you because we know that when we build our lives on the truths of your word that we will be safe and secure to whatever aspect of our lives that might be, whether it's our personal lives, whether it's our marriages. Lord, build the truth of who you are in our lives whether it's how we do our work, how we go to school, how we are neighbors, how we manage our money, how we interact in our entertainments, how we treat those around us. Lord, may the truth of who you are ever be established in us and may your light shine through us. So empower us, direct us as we go, uh, we study your word in the next few months together. Your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.